Welcome to the podcast, Two Teas in a Pod. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Two Teas in a Pod. Welcome to Two Teas in a Pod. I'm Katie. And I'm Tim. This week we are talking about stories. Mm. I love a good story. I love a good story. I love a good story. Um... Did you get read any bedtime stories as a child, Tim? I did. Um, when I was younger, I used to share a room with my brother. Mm-hmm. So my dad used to read stories to both of us. Oh. Which was really nice. Well, my brother is two years older than me. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the story would be maybe more complicated mm-hmm. or more, I don't know, more appropriate for him. But it was fine, fine by me. The main one that I remember that really stuck in my head and definitely influenced my tastes when it comes to books was The Hobbit. So he read The Hobbit to us. He must have read it more than once, I think. And I really remember getting caught caught up in the story and picturing like all that, you know, the dwarves and the orcs and getting quite scared in the battles, especially when they meet the dragon at the end. And it's kind of like the feeling that I got when my dad read it to me. I still get now when I read the book again. Oh, that's so nice. Um, And I've reread the book several times. And I think it's kind of like trying to recapture that feeling when I read it. It's something something about being read to as a child. Even now, but as a child, it's you you see everything. Mm -hmm. It's much more real i suppose your your imagination takes over you're reading a story but you're well you're being read a story by your and especially if it's someone who's quite a good storyteller can really take over your imagination definitely my Very dad visceral my dad used to do all the voices as well different voices for different <laughs> characters and things so it was very like yeah very spellbinding you'd really be caught up in it um and then he read The Lord of the Rings more to my brother. Well, to me as well, but The Lord of the Rings is written in a different style. It's quite more. complicated. There's lots of names in The Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings. I remember that we used to listen to it as an audiobook in the car on tape. I think it was something like 15 tapes, yeah. audio cassettes. It was a massive box. It was a huge box of them. And I was just confused i didn't know anyone's name everyone like boromir faramir they're all they all sound the same i didn't know who anyone was it's difficult to keep up with the storyline so i think from the lord of the rings i just remember specific maybe the action scenes more um because i couldn't follow the story so easily and i think i used to kind of drift off to sleep while Mm. he was reading it Mm. so i think Maybe I remember less of that one. Yeah. What about you? What books were you read Um, at bedtime? I think we were read a a lot of books. I think that was part of the bedtime routine. But the ones I remember... I remember my dad reading to me a lot. Uh, We used to... My sister's about the same age gap as as you and your brother. Um, But we used... He used to read Famous Five to us by Enid Blyton. Classics. I love the Famous Five. They were brilliant. There's some great adventures. Mm, all involving all fizzy, fizzy lemonade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Timmy the dog. Yeah, Timmy the dog and George is a girl. It's all a bit confusing, yeah. but wonderful. Yeah, well, I, I really there. related to George because I was like, had really short hair and was often confused with a boy. 
You're a tomboy. Yeah, I felt very similar to her. I was like, yeah, come on, George. Well, I was, had the same name as the dog, so. <laughs> there so, you go. Who <laughs> you do relate to, Tim? The dog. The dog. Do you remember any specific Famous Five stories? Oh, yeah, there's five go to Smuggler's Island. Mm. And uh, they get basically, basically just get a load of smugglers arrested. I can't remember what they're smuggling. I think it's drugs, which is a bit racy for Enid Blyton. Was it drugs? I don't know. Probably not. I don't know what it was. Mm. I don't know. But I remember enjoying it a lot. But now, now that I teach children, I love reading stories to kids. Yeah, me too. Their little faces, they're just looking up at you and they're completely gripped by the story. Mm, Their faces light up when you turn the page. They really do. And it's all the excitement of what's going to happen on the next page. And you've got these beautiful illustrations. Mm-hmm. I love telling um, all of the Julia Donaldson stories. Like ah, yeah. the Gruffalo, Room on the Broom. They've got those beautiful illustrations. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love them. Yeah, they're really, really nice. And I like the way you can kind of play with the kids' expectations. And like yeah. you peek at the next page and go, oh, wow. Uh-oh, what's coming next? There's a big dragon. And I really like it. Exactly. You can really have them eating out of the palm of your hand. Exactly. You know? they'll, they'll do anything to see the next page. Exactly. Yeah. You really get, get all of their attention, which is surprisingly hard to do. Yeah. Got, you've got them there sitting down, focused on you. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah, keeping their interests can be difficult, but, you know. A, a story a, will do it. It's a sign of a good storyteller, no? They can spin a good yarn, <laughs> keep them exactly. interested. Okay, so today we're going to be speaking to, well, we're going to be hearing a story from a master storyteller himself, Ooh. our friend Wilf Mertens. And we're also going to be speaking to uh, Melody Philip about using stories to teach English. So looking forward to that. This week's social media challenge, comment challenge, um, is to tell us a little bit about what stories you were read uh, at, at bedtime um, you can find us on social media at uh, twitter it is at two teas pod or our facebook page which is two teas in a pod all of these is the number two you have to search for and our soundcloud page uh which is two teas in a pod very original please leave a comment yeah and we'll read out the best ones on the next show yeah so we're talking to Melody Philip about stories. First of all, Melody, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, hi everyone. Um, my name is Melody Philip. Um, I guess my interest in stories came from when I was a child, really. Um, I'm half Scottish and half from Yorkshire. So basically I got to tell stories from both sides. Um, from when I was quite young, my uncle, who's from Edinburgh, used to tell me stories. And on the other side, my Yorkshire family uh, recently told me a fantastic story from the Civil War in Yorkshire. So I kind of grew up on stories uh, and that's when my interest came. And then I was firstly a therapist in London, working with um, people with mental health issues. And then when I came to Spain, I retrained as a teacher. And so then I started using stories and storytelling uh, in pedagogy, really. So I kind of have two different or three different lives. Um, I'm a storyteller and uh, I got my inspiration. I guess I get my inspiration mainly from other people telling their stories. 
Um, what kind of stories do you remember from your childhood? Well, I remember Dr. Zeus, uh, like like a lot of people. Uh, eggs and ham. I still tell eggs and ham now to my students or anyone that will listen, really. Um, I love uh, this kind of uh, repetition, especially for language teaching. Um, simplicity is the key, I think, um, in terms of stories. Often the most simple stories are the most powerful. Um, I was talking to my very... It's actually a post-proficiency student last week about it, knowing I was coming today, and he, I read him a story, and I asked him when he'd last been read a story, and of course he said I, I was a child. And he, we talked about the, the whole concept of being read a story as an adult because he was very, very busy. He's a sort of executive and he was exhausted and he looked exhausted. And we were watching a TED talk and afterwards we talked about the kind of relaxing aspect of being read a story, which is part of kind of why I use it in teaching as well. Um, some people are better at reading stories than others. When I was young, my sister used to say, uh, read a story, read a story with expression. And that meant being different sort of uh, characters and having different voices. Um, so, uh, and Roald Dahl is a kind of big one in my... Uh, James and the Giant Peach is quite a big one. Um, and nowadays there's um, some great stories out there like um, Olivia, which is a, a little pig. And so the kids love them as well. So that's kind of another one. I also remember telling stories, like to my nephew, uh, one story was the first time I ever saw him laugh at a joke was reading a story. The first time I saw him get humour, and he was quite young, and that was a magical moment. And I think that's that's the essence of stories. They're magical. Yeah, definitely. Do you remember the the story you were reading when that made him laugh? I don't remember. I think it was Roald Dahl. It was something about um, a cabbage. That's what I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> and someone had, had uh, grown a cabbage in an allotment sort of thing. And uh, the cabbage grew bigger and bigger to everyone's surprise. So it was kind of either on from James and the Giant Peach from Roald Dahl or it was someone else. Uh, but I just remember the moment. And I think that's the key of, of stories, that it's not uh, always the story, it's the moment and how you felt in the story, either reading it, being read it, or being involved in it. And I think the more involved you are in stories, the better. Um, and I think we're all, we're all got the capacity to tell a good story. <laughs> okay. And uh, what books do you read for your own personal pleasure nowadays? Um, well, I, I don't read that much for pleasure because I'm doing research, so I tend to find it really hard to find the time. Um, I quite like um, short stories. So things that are kind of a bit different. Um, I'm reading a book called, um, uh, Good, I think it's called Good Morning, Good Night or something like that. I can't remember the author right now. Um, and I've also been reading The Great Gatsby, which is quite an interesting book um, because of its kind of like completely different stories in terms of a lot of other books at that time were very turgid and very difficult to read. So he was sort of writing something different. Um, a friend of mine has just written um, Dublin Folk Tales for Children. She's called Orla McGovern, and uh, it's just been published recently, and there's some beautiful stories in there. Um, she was talking about writing stories as if she was telling them. So then you've got the oral tradition and the written tradition coming together. And if you read them, they're absolutely delightful. There's one about Onya's tiny spoon and... Uh, 
yeah, it's just uh, beautiful kind of stories. Um, I've recently read uh, a Dr. Zeus book to an excited six-year-old uh, who wasn't actually te wasn't teaching them, but it was sort of a moment. And they loved the repetition. They loved the, the delight of it, you know, and that. And I used to read my niece and nephew stories. Um, I have about six books on my Kindle waiting to be read. Um, Me but too. It, <laughs> but it's just really hard um, to, to, to sort of have the time, I guess. But then one thing I do do a lot is when I travel, I read. So I kind of store them up a bit, and then when I go travelling, I try and try to read them. I, I run a writing group as well uh, in Barcelona and meet up to teach creative writing. And I always ask people when they join, what's your favourite author, what's your favourite book? And they say, oh, I go blank when you ask that. And now I understand what they're saying, because as soon as you've asked, it's like about music, isn't it? You, you go blank. But um, I'm quite eclectic in my tastes of reading. Um, and I'm very interested in oral traditions of reading. Uh, I've just started reading Americana by Chemichamba Adochi. She's written a book um, about a young girl going to America to study at Princeton. Very interesting book. That's the one I most just started reading at the moment. So that's um, my favourite book ever is um, Beloved by Toni Morrison, uh, a book that changed my life. Mm. I don't think I have a favourite book. <laughs> <laughs> I need to write that one down. Beloved yeah. by... Toni Morrison. Toni Morrison. Yeah, she won the Nobel Prize for Literature or for that. And she's, a, she's an academic based in America. Okay. Great. Well, thank you very much, Melody. Hello, so we're talking to Wilf. Uh, Hi. About stories. So, Wilf, do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about uh, what you do, your job with Readathon, with the charity? Okay, so I'm a storyteller, and that means I tell stories. Mostly I tell traditional stories, so like folk tales, legends, fairy tales, that kind of material, the old stuff. And one of the jobs that I do is working for a charity called Read for Good. And we go into a, into children's hospitals and I go around the children's hospital and I tell stories to the kids. And it's just to give them a little escape. They don't have to have it. I just I knock on their door and say, like, hey, I'm a storyteller. Would you like to, mm -hmm. to retell some stories? And if they want to, they can hear some stories. And often they tell stories to me as well. So we'll will kind of share stories together and they love it. It's just like a kind of, it helps them escape in their, in their minds from their, their hospital room because they, you know, they can play video games or watch videos, mm -hmm. but it gets boring. You okay. know, you, you're locked in a room and uh, telling stories is uh, a really good method of kind of expanding your horizons, horizons without right. leaving the room. Good escapism. What sort of stories do you find go down best in that situation? Oh, I mean, it depends on the person. Yeah. So, very often, actually, the children want ghost stories. They oh. love ghost stories, scary stories. And often children have an obsession or a relationship with a certain kind of beast. So oh, really? they're very interested in ghosts or they're very interested in vampires. They're very interested in werewolves. 
Or perhaps they like animals or they have a real connection with a certain animal like a wolf or cats and they will be drawn to stories about those animals. Mm -hmm. Um, If they have an obsession, say, with something like Star Wars or so, I can tell those stories as well. Superheroes, I I tell the stories from films because to me they're just like uh, folk yeah, legends. There's they're, they're legends. They're they're myths, just like uh, Homer's Odyssey. Mm-hmm. I'll tell like uh, you know the Avengers. Ah, oh, brilliant. That sounds good. How easy do you find it to like improvise a story based on what a, a kid gives you in the moment? It's something that you. It, I don't want to say that you get better at it, but it's more like you learn to relax and know that the story is going to be there. So. If I improvise a story, very often I'll say to the kids, like, tell me three characters Mm -hmm. and I'll get them to give me three characters and I'll just go from there. And once you learn, once you've done it a few times, you know that if you've got a wolf, SpongeBob SquarePants (laughs) and a policeman, they, you know that all those characters are going to have this adventure and they all have these certain characters and that is just going to, the story is just going to flow from the characters. So you learn that people, that these, the kind of things that kids say they will say characters who are very easy for me to talk about. So like a princess. Princesses want to escape. Okay. They always escape in one way or another. Whether they're evil or good, they are going to escape. Or mm-hmm. at least they're going to try. Um, the policeman obviously wants to catch people. Yeah. Whether he's good or bad, he wants to catch people. The wolf is wild but loyal. So they all have these archetypal characters. And once you know that, all you need to do is just talk about them. And the story flows on. And you'll know when it comes towards the end. Because all the characters will reach the resolution of their particular stories and it once you learn to trust in it it's actually Mm -hmm. so easy and fun so once each character is like done what you expected them to do once the policeman has caught someone or failed to catch someone once the princess has escaped or failed to escape she's done that's that's her role and um and you know that the story's done yeah okay you talked a little bit about myths um you've also recently written a book about urban legends, urban myths in Bristol. Yeah. 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 So Bristol's a city in the southwest of England. And it's a, a great place. I lived there for many years. And um, every every city probably in the world uh, has what in English we call urban myths. And every language will have a different kind of way of talking about these stories. Um, like uh, in Sweden, they call them friend of a friend stories. Mm-hmm. Because they're always introduced by like, oh, I know someone or my friend has a friend who this happened to. And these stories are kind of stories that are meant to be true and maybe are true. Like they, no one's quite sure. Yeah. Uh, So there's kind of stories about, they're kind of rumors. They're almost close Mm -hmm. to that. But I think my, uh, my take on them, my um, understanding, my perspective of them is that they are modern folklore they're modern um legends mm-hmm. they are just as um as kind of they're, they're the same thing as when you read uh little red riding hood escaping from the wolf yeah they're the same sort of primal human need for stories uh, about where they live about local areas that we've always that human beings have always had yeah so that's the way that i kind of approach them and it's been really fun collecting them Mm-hmm. Um, and just I just do it by talking to people and when you first ask people they, they'll they say no I don't know any I don't know any but then once you start to tell them they'll be like yeah. oh yeah no I did hear one thing mm-hmm. and then they'll start they'll start to tell you nice. is that how you collected the different stories yeah just, just from speaking to different people yeah in the city yeah 
Okay. Yeah. I sat in the town center at one point with a stool okay. and it said, come and tell me your, your urban legends. Nice. So then people would just come up and like... Okay. And how many legends did you collect? I mean, I collected like, I mean, hundreds and hundreds, yeah. but a lot of them are kind of could be grouped together. Right. And a lot of them are very confused. So there's a lot of legends about the underground tunnels that are beneath Bristol mm-hmm. and they go back many thousands of years and there's lots of them there's lots of rumors about what goes on there today or what went on there in the past okay and people will give you little bits and then i had to put them together in a story and then some other stories they came to me like fully complete fully formed. like it just yeah. fully formed yeah they had yeah. a beginning a middle and an end they were ready to go yeah because obviously like people have told those stories so many times they've crystallized now into one version yeah okay yeah yeah. What was uh, a particular favourite? Do you want to tell us a particular favourite? I would love religion? to tell you a particular favourite, yeah. So my my favourite um, Bristol urban legend is also my favourite urban legend that I've ever heard from anywhere. And, um, you know, I, I've always loved urban legends as well. And like, but this, I think this is just a, just a really, really cool one. And it's also one that I've never heard because often they travel. Often with the stories that I've collected, people will say to me, they'll be from a totally different city or they'll be from a totally different country and they'll say like, oh no, that happened in, mm-hmm. in Bruges or that happened in okay. London or that happened in Manchester. They, because these stories travel, but they change where they're based. But right. this one, I've never heard anywhere else but Bristol. Right, okay. So I'll tell you, it goes like this. Not so long ago, there was a car park in Bristol. And this car park was kind of a cool place, right? Because... It was right on the edge of the Downs, which is anyone from Bristol will know is a great big patch of Greenland, a kind of park, common land for the people to use. People walk their dogs, they fly their kites. It's very beautiful. You have views of the city and it's right by the zoo. And there was a little patch of grass where you could park your car. And there was an old car parking attendant there. You know, it was a guy in like a high visibility jacket and, you know, um, he would sit there with like a bucket and you put your money in the bucket. It was kind of old school. Like these days, you'll more often pay a machine when you park your car than you would pay a person. Car parks don't tend to be attended these days, but this one still was. And the old guy, he was kind of a character. He never said anything. He was very taciturn. He would just kind of sit there with a, a steely look on his face, but he wasn't unfriendly. He would give you a little smile and a nod as you drove your car into the uh, car park. And it was very cheap. You know, it was only £2.50, you could park the whole day. And nowadays car parks, you know, like £7, £10, £15, that's ordinary. But £2.50 to park on the edge of the park, you could go to the zoo, it was sweet. And he was there for a few years. There was one woman who worked at the zoo and she would park there every uh, every day. Her name was Afia. And Afia, she was a certain sort of person who... She's, I, I, I feel like I identify with with Afia because she was someone who liked to have a a rapport with everyone, like had to be able to have conversations with everyone. She was friendly. She liked to to chat to her neighbours. She liked to chat to her colleagues. She liked to know people. Um, And the fact that the car parking attendant never said anything, she wanted to have a conversation with him. She was curious about who he was. In fact, everyone was. Everyone wanted to know about him, but he was so mysterious. He was like the Sphinx in Egypt that sits outside the pyramids, you know, this mysterious stony face you don't know what he's thinking and no one ever sort of knew how to start a conversation with him but she thought she could 
she could do that. And she would get to know him a little bit and get a conversation, at least just a friendly chat. And she thought she knew the way to do this. And that was, she knew that he was out there all weathers. You know, he was out there rain or sun. He was always there. And it was obvious that he was he was very um, hardy to the weather. So if it was raining or snowing or sleeting, he would just be there the same with his bucket and his high-vis jacket. But when it was sunny, you could tell he was drinking the sun like a lizard basking in the sunshine. And she could tell he was something of a, you know, a connoisseur of the weather. And so she thought she would wait to one of those days where... You don't know if it's going to be a nice sunny summer's day or if it's going to cloud over and start to rain. Like it, the sun is shining, but there's also some big clouds in the sky. She was going to wait till a day like this and she was going to say to him, how do you think it's going to turn out? Like, what, do you, what do you think the weather's going to be like? And she had a, a sense that she trusted that was he wasn't going to be able to resist giving an answer. And once she had even just one word from him, the next one would be easier and she would be able to start a conversation. So she woke up one morning, she opened her curtains, she saw the big heavy clouds in the sky, but the sun was pouring down. She thought this is the day. She drove into work, to the car park, but he wasn't there. And the next day, he wasn't there. And the next day, and the next day, the next day, he just wasn't there. And where had he gone? And people started to get worried because now people were parking there without paying. And also like, there was no fence around the car park. So what was to stop people just parking like anywhere on the grass? You know, it wasn't organized. There was no one managing it. And she got worried. She told the people at the zoo and eventually they called the council, Bristol City Council. And they said, you know, there's no one attending the car park on the downs and you need to sort it out. And the council were like, well, that car park doesn't belong to us. That's run by the zoo. And the zoo were like, no, that's not our land. It's nothing to do with us. We don't run that. And the council like, well, it's nothing to do with us. And they did some research, the council, and they found that the land is common land. It doesn't belong to anyone. It belongs to the people. The old man in the high-vis jacket with the bucket was just an old man in a high-vis jacket with a bucket. He wasn't official. No one asked him to be there. He had just turned up one day and started collecting money for people parking on the grass. <laughs> and then one day he had left. And the amazing thing about this story is that people in Bristol don't see this guy as a scammer, as a um, someone who's, you know, uh, tricking people out of their money or a villain, uh, a criminal. They see him as a hero. And one woman, you know, tried to explain to me why. She was like, well, he wasn't greedy. He didn't ask for like loads of money. He just asked for a bit. So from the person parking's perspective, they were saving money. But he was making a bit for himself. But also, he didn't wait until he got caught. He was sensible. He was like the gambler who knows when to stop. He stopped and then he went off. And people like imagining him on a cruise or probably he moved to Spain and like lives on a beach, which is what all English people sort of want to do, is like live in the sunshine. And like people like imagining him having his happily ever after. And I heard a beautiful ending to the story. Uh, everyone in Bristol knows that story, but they don't always know this. It's like a postscript. Which is, you know, and someone literally told me this like this, like a friend of mine went to a funeral and it was down in the south of Bristol in this beautiful cemetery, very famous. And he said that it was like to a guy he didn't know, but he was kind of, he'd lived in Bristol his whole life. And then he had moved away for like the last 10 years. He had moved to Spain, but then he had had his last wish was to be buried in his hometown. So they took him home to Bristol to be buried. 
And when he had finally gone into the ground, coffin was down. His brother, old man, got up, his hands shaking slightly. And he said, Fred wanted me to read this letter, said he had to be in the ground and gone. I've not opened it myself. And he split open this manila envelope and opened it up and he, and he read out. Dear all, thanks for everything you've done. You've been great. I needed to make my last confession since I've never said anything about it. I know what I did could be wrong. Maybe all car parks are daylight robbery, but still I was a robber. I took people's money. I sat there with my bucket and I just let it pour in. You know, I wanted my place in the sunshine to end my life that way. And I don't know if I did anyone any harm, but I just wanted all the same to apologize. Forgive me. Please don't shed any tears on the account of an old man who died happy. But listen to a bit of Adge Cutler and have yourselves a bash. Long live city. Yours, Fred. And so, so read the the last confession of the famous parking attendant of Bristol. Bristol Zoo is an amazing story. I think I've heard, I heard it when I was at uni in Bristol, but not in such full detail. And... Um, yeah, it's an amazing story. Um, I don't know how much how much of it's true, but I hope, I like to think it's yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like I refuse to comment on that kind of thing because yeah. I think it's like it needs to it needs to sit there. It needs to stay. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Well, thanks a lot for that, Wilf. It's a really really good story. Thank you. Thanks for your, thanks for your time. So we're talking to Melody about storytelling in the classroom. So first of all, wh- why use storytelling? Why do you think it's an important tool? Um, well, I guess that um, my interest in storytelling has been for a long time. And I went and did a summer school at the Scottish Storytelling Centre in Edinburgh a couple of years ago. And I realised that the beauty of storytelling has two main areas that make it absolutely perfect for teaching. Uh, I mean, there are lots of subsections and sub-areas, but the main two are uh, that it includes personalisation. So immediately you've got people telling stories in a classroom or reading stories, creating their own stories. Um, we talk a lot about uh, repetition of teaching vocabulary and how do we teach... The million-dollar question is how do we teach vocabulary? It's very difficult to know how often to teach it so that people learn it. And I think that stories lend themselves to this repetition, but in different guises. So instead of obviously repeating the same activity, uh, you're doing a bit like the kind of magicians. So everyone's looking at this hand when in fact you're doing something with the other hand, which is repeating grammar points, repeating vocabulary. But because they're different stories, it's not so obvious and it's much more enjoyable. And I think I work a lot, although I've got a wide breadth of working in other ways, like reading stories, using stories at higher levels, at medium and lower levels, it's also about um, people creating their own stories. Uh, When I say I'm a storyteller in teaching, people have this image of me with Dr. Zeus or or Olivia or one of these books sitting, reading to the class. And then the next question is, are they kids? And I actually do it more with adults than anything else. So I guess that's one of the pedagogical great things about it is that it lends itself to uh, recycling of language. The other great thing um, that is attracted me to it is that you're using the four skills nearly all the time. 
So if you're reading a story, you're reading. If you're telling a story, you're speaking. If you're speaking, someone else is listening. And if you're writing a story, obviously you're writing. And if you're writing, you're reading. So they all intertwine, uh, like stories intertwine. Um, if you get someone to write a story, by definition, they're experiencing and practicing writing. If they come back in a class and read it, someone else is listening to them. Um, so I realised that <clears throat> storytelling had great power. The other, the other element that I really, really like, I suppose the third main element, although I said there were two, there are actually three, is it's transcultural. So stories are, they go beyond cultural kind of limitations. Um, I love teaching. I've been teaching a while. I did my own diploma in TESOL last year. But one of the things that is very frustrating uh, for students, I think, is there are cultural expectations sometimes put on teaching and in from the books, say, or just in general. Stories allow people to tell their own story from their own cultural viewpoint, uh, no filter sort of thing. And that in itself, what I've noticed is creates a lot of motivation. People love telling stories. They love the process of realising they're a storyteller in addition to doing it in English. Um, <clears throat> for example, last week with an A2 group, quite a, quite a low level group, we read, we, I got something from a, one of the textbooks and we did um, a dialogue at quite a low level, which was a kind of nice to meet you at a party dialogue, practising auxiliary forms for um, present tense for questions. So then what I did was I got them, after we'd done that and scaffolded using that as an activity to help them and go through the grammar, we then had a class where we they created their own dialogues in pairs. But beyond that, they had to be characters. And this is where my, I guess, my improvisation uh, kind of side of me comes out and, and some acting and love of theatre and drama and things and all things like that. So they actually had to have different names. They weren't allowed to have their own names. So it was like a little mini drama. So then they create them. So then obviously I'm helping them with the grammar, for example, and I'm helping them develop something. And then they have to come, to, if obviously I don't force them, but most of them want to, come to the front and it becomes a play. Um, then you've got your audience, so the audience is listening. Uh, they've got a reason, which we know that in pedagogy there must be a motive or reason for doing the activity, otherwise it's seen as often, research shows it's pretty meaningless. And also, it's not just about the language. People, f they c you can see people blossoming. They kind of love it and they they talk about it, you know, weeks later. Oh, do you remember I was Kate in the drama or whatever? And also you can ask them rather than, we, t we do, t it's not just about teacher talk, but <clears throat> I think teachers predominate too much in the classroom. Our job is to present the, the right co uh, conditions for learning, the right pedagogical tools, and then they they go, they're off. And your job is to go around and help with that. So my job is to know how to help them develop that dialogue, not to leave the room and go and have a coffee, but allow them to develop their own style, their own way of, of doing things. Because these are critical thinking skills, and I don't think we use them perhaps enough as we could. So stories, I see that as storytelling. They're telling their story. So they had to introduce it as... Uh, this is a birthday party, so we, we did collocation with the party, so this is birthday party, it's 2018, I'm Kate, this is Mary or whatever. And then they told us, they did the dialogue, nice to meet you, whatever. And somebody came out with baby shower, which is quite a high level word for that level, so 
eliciting stuff was made it more interesting. And then they they kind of did the dialogue really. And you'd think that people say to me, oh well, don't they very shy? And that's a lot to ask of an A2 group, but they love it. And I think that the more we kind of do those sort of things, that's just one example. But I think you have to read the room. You have to be aware. Some some students, some classes, I would never do that with because you just it's just not the right group, or they they're too embarrassed, or you might do it with one pair, but not every pair. So that's a kind of way of adapting something. But that's for me storytelling and language learning sort of together, um, which can still be adapted for quite low levels. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with, if you have the one or two individuals in a lesson, how do you deal with the, the sceptics of, of that technique? Okay, I think this is the thing. I mean, some people might call it cheating, but I don't call it cheating. Uh, I think that stories are very organic in by, na- by nature, so therefore the class is organic. Um, I don't force my students to do anything. I can, you know, because I guess because I was a uh, kind of psychologist before and, and I've taught for a while, and I think a lot of teachers know their own students. I think a lot of teachers know their own students much more than they think. And I think that not only we're we not teaching critical skills in English teaching sometimes to, for students, we're not teaching them for teachers in teacher training. We need to have critical thinking skills. We need to be able to uh, adapt and, and develop our own ability to read the room, to understand group dynamics and things like that, which is not always certainly not taught very much in an in initial training course. So I think it's also about, okay, so why don't they want to do it? That's part of the pedagogy. Is it because they're shy? That's one issue. Is it because they don't know what they're doing? Is it because I haven't taught them enough? Is it because I haven't scaffolded the language enough? So therefore, I would be kind of analysing why I think they're not doing it, and then the others get on with what they're doing, and then I would be like, oh, okay, so um, what have we got here? And kind of like a dialogue. There are some people who clearly, this would be a nightmare for them to get up in front of the room. Um, so again, it's like, well, is it a real problem for them to do it from their chair? Mm-hmm. Is it a problem for them not to do it? Um, I would explain to them the benefits of doing it, but then they can weigh up what's what's for them. I have to say in, in the last week, I did say to them all, right, this is what we're doing, we're going up to the front. Uh, I don't always do that. Sometimes I sort of say, right, if you want to, you can do this or whatever. Um, I think they needed a push. They needed to feel, they needed to experience themselves learning language in a real live way that they can use. Take out of the classroom. Uh, I said to them, you know, you could be in London, you could be somewhere else now. And the idea is you could meet someone at a party and speak English. And people say, oh, that's, a, that's a lot to ask of A2, but is it? I think um, challenge, challenging them is always good. It's always, they always need a challenge, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we talk about enjoyment. There's a conference for the Innovate Conference in May, which is all about enjoyment and stress and things like that in, uh, in ELT. I don't always... It's not about... I think it is about enjoyment. Yes, of course it is. But it's about engagement. Because enjoyment is kind of up and down, like all of us have that, like enjoyment... Engage, but engagement. I think if something's not working, you have to be ready. When I when I studied originally in my my CELTA, I had this idea of a not a mobile as in a mobile phone, but mobile above the baby's cot, mobile, with all these sort of different lesson plans dangling down. And that when I went in the room, I would try and get better at ah, this isn't working. I'll use the other one, 
And I think that is a skill perhaps you develop the more experience you get. But I don't see there's any harm in teaching that in teacher training about how to read the room there and then. Um, uh, as I think you know, Tim, I'm doing research into emergent language and I'm really obsessed with emergent language issues. And so obviously that ties in with that, that what emergent language can we get? I'm also obsessed with real language. What is, is it better to teach some real language that we can really use than, well, I can fill in 20 blanks? Um, I was interviewed recently and it was, I was talking about um, you know, using language and, and not having language, but doing language, which is, I think, is the point, really. We need to be using language like we do outside the classroom, in the classroom, conversation being the, the main thing. Yeah. Do you agree, Tim? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think students obviously see the benefit, like you're saying, the idea of meeting someone at a party, they can immediately see how that could immediately be, be useful for them in a real life situation. So, and like you said, working with dialogue is obviously a much more natural way to present language and things. So, And I think also um, students are much more, I don't want to use the word intelligent, but they're much more with it than we give them credit for. I think we under, underestimate. And, I, and, and then as a corollary of that, I think we underestimate teachers sometimes and I think, in the sense that I think we need to challenge ourselves. Um, I think that we need to be uh, demand high. This is this phrase that used to be around a lot more than it is now, but I think we demand high of ourselves. I think that's the issue, not so much demand high. I think we should be demanding high already of, of materials or not materials, whatever you decide to use or mix. Mm -hmm. And the other thing about stories is, it, it, of course, you can use books to adapt to stories if you have to. Because people say to me, oh, it's, you say some great things, but we have to use X book. So it's all very well throwing the book out the window, but we, we have to use it. Well, you can use a small part. Uh, one thing that you can use a lot is transcripts. So you can cut out, you can block out certain words before the, the, the listening, as we call mm -hmm. it, doing a listening. Yeah. So you can block out those words and people have to guess what they are in pairs and then, listening, then you listen and then they listen to it and then they actually act out the dialogue. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that's very simple, can be taken from any book. Um, and the other kind of things are things like these storytelling cubes that you can yeah. use, which you can... I think you have to scaffold uh, using stories, just as you have to scaffold language. I wouldn't ever dream of just turning up one day and saying, right, we're doing storytelling, uh, everybody get in pairs, you're going to do a dialogue. I mean, everyone just run out of the room, yeah. and rightly so, no? But I think that if you scaffold it and you kind of do little activities, um, the other kind of activities that are really useful is... Things like uh, w uh, watching something, a video, or a listening, listening, or reading something, and then before you do that, you get people to you give them the title and get them to um, predict what this story is about. Because most of these kind of small texts or large texts from books or the listening texts are effectively stories. Yeah. So you get them to you give them a state. You can sometimes give them three words, and then they have to guess what the story is. And then they watch the actual thing and then compare what, mm -hmm. what they thought. Um, and then for homework, they can write the original story that they thought yeah. it was going to be. That works well as a kind of writing into, speaking into writing, listening into writing, etc. Um, one of the best things in my career was I helped produce a film, a short film a few years ago here. I was a production assistant for the first time ever, which was very, very um, intimidating. And... Uh, 
obviously very pressurised in terms of time. And so I, gave, I, I asked permission, because there was partial nudity in this. So I asked permission for the DOS if I could use it, and it was adults, they said that was fine. And actually saw the actor who played it yesterday. And then they, I gave them three words from the film, and they had to guess what the film was about. Completely different to the actual film. Mm -hmm. The film's quite bizarre. But then we had discussed the film, we watched the film, what do you think it's about? So of course, lots of dialogue then about what this story was really about on different levels. This was an advanced group. And then they loved their version more, mm -hmm. so much, that for the next sort of eight weeks, or I don't know, no, it was an extensive course, so even longer, one of them, each one wrote the next part of the film from the original version and brought it in and read it out. Brilliant. So that's an exa that's a longer project, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that way you're, you can see, I think you can obviously see there's engagement there because mm -hmm. they chose to do it. And do you use stories much? Yeah, I love, I love using stories in the classroom. I do it all the time. I love telling them and hearing them. and I think it's a very important tool mm -hmm. for engagement, as you say. Yeah. And I think the, the transcultural aspect is really important. Um, we were talking about stories yesterday. Uh, as I was saying, it was at an event. And also there's a, a famous story that I tell sometimes when I'm teacher training about Anansi, who's a West African folklore um, spider about the words from being storytellers um, so that's the other thing that people can when you're in sort of groups you say to once you've sort of done a few activities that get people started people say ah oh, there's this story from my culture or I'd like to talk mm -hmm. about this or obviously you can adapt that for different levels different types of groups um, and then obviously there's other aspects of like improvisation I do improvisation with students once they get into that they love it and sort of wind that in, entwine that in. Um, and I think that you have to sort of analyse whether how it's working and whether it's working or not. But when people are coming back using their language that they've been learning, then that's a way of telling that they, they're enjoying it and using it. Um, and of course, the other thing you can do is take your students to events. There's lots of events here in English, improvised events, readings, there's different places that, that have writing courses and then people go and read their stories. Um, do you use stories too much in your... Um, I, the typical thing I'd say, I use them quite a lot with young learners. I'm teaching quite a lot of young learners at the moment. Right. And um, But yeah, I always love turning a story for kids into a proper show, trying to do the voices and the actions and that, like you said, finding little bits of language that you can repeat and you can build upon. Um, I'd love to use it more with adults. I used to do it a bit like quite a lot of role play things with adults when I had a conversation class in the past. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there was a bit of getting the students into it and building up their confidence and seeing which ones, but they always surprise you. There's some you think, oh, that, this one's not going to go for this. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's like a, I don't know, an, an executive type like businessman in a group with lots of other adults and you think, oh, he doesn't want to look foolish and they they sometimes surprise you and they go for it and throw themselves into mm -hmm. being the i don't know neighbor from hell or something in a role play you've yeah. invented and it's i think another way of doing it is is they they have i get students to create their own role plays hmm. a lot so they are actually in control this is the thing with stories if they create things they're in control of how much they say how much information they want to give and they, and they like that um, and i think transcripts are a great way 
to use uh, stories in the classroom because you're scaffolding the dial the dialogue and they they, they need to practice most mm -hmm. I think we all agree they need to practice conversation and dialogue and they fa they find it safety in having it in front of them and yeah. reading it mm -hmm. uh, I think reading text as a as a rule isn't isn't much use yeah. in general terms because you read differently to the way that you speak naturally. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you're doing a reading focus lesson, that's different. But dialogues and these transcripts and books are not used very much, and they're available, and people often say, we have to use the book, you know. And that's that's, yeah. a, that's a sort of, we can't uh, change that. Okay, so maybe you do something before it, then watch the thing, watch things rather than listening all the time, mm -hmm. because that's more engaging, and then do a dialogue, because then you're copying the intonation, yeah, weak sounds, and, yeah. you're looking at connected speech in terms of phonology and pedagogy. And instead of teaching like, oh no, the stressed word is here, the unstressed is here, which of course we do, it's much more natural, ah, they've heard it three times, the dialogue, so now they're going to copy what they've heard. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're copying the rhythm themselves. But they've got the safety of, they've listened to it already, and that's the scaffolding, and the safety of the piece of paper. Mm -hmm. um, people say, oh, no, you, you can't be using a transcript because I've got to listen. You don't have to use one all the time, but I think quite often it seems to work really well. Um, and then they can practice that in teams, and they can practice that together, and then all together, or whatever, whichever way mm -hmm. you want to do it. Um, but I think we're not teaching, that's another aspect, we're not teaching phonologically enough. Um, we can't expect people to um, sort of pick up on unstressed stress, connected speech, weak sounds, strong sounds, uh, and different types of uh, phonological sounds, such as the famous schwa, if we're not actually giving them examples of that and letting them practice. But we need it uh, in a kind of more controlled way, which is dialogue is a great way of doing that. Um, but they're speaking, and then you can adapt it. You could say, right, tell us a story about these characters if you want to do it really small or develop another dialogue for homework um teens love that i mean yeah. everyone's talking about oh engagement with teens is so hard teens love dialogue they love transcripts and playing around with things like that and they're the ones who love stories as well um obviously if you sit down and say today with i'm telling you a story no no they're not but again this kind of magic thing i'm doing this but with this hand but really we're doing something else mm -hmm. and 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 the other thing about stories is that, um, as Krashen says, it lowers the affect, disorder, affect uh, issue. So they're not as nervous. If they're not as nervous, the idea is that they'll be more relaxed and therefore they'll be more likely to learn language. Mm -hmm. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Melody. Um, it was really, in really insightful, really interesting. Thank you. Um, Can I just add one thing? One thing I didn't say was that um, I run, if that's all right, I run yeah. Seahorse English, which is an online development group for teachers, which is dedicated to the crossover between pedagogy and the arts, really. And, and it's kind of main focus is storytelling, whether that's history, language, uh, pedagogy and... All sorts of interesting things, really. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Where can uh, our listeners find out about... That would be on English. Facebook. It's yeah. a Facebook group which you join if you're a... You can teach any any language. It doesn't have to be English as well. Okay, fantastic. And what was the writing group you were talking about? Uh, the one writing group is uh, Barcelona Writing Salon, which is on Meetup. Thanks very much, Ronnie. That was really, really insightful. Really enjoyed that. Thank you very much for having me. It was really nice. You're welcome. We're on a mission to avoid repetition.
conversation with five ways to say. So, some vocabulary related to telling stories. If you tell a story, you might also spin a yarn. Spin a yarn. Yeah.、Um, what's the origin of that? What's that expression?、Oh, some、mean? seafaring origin. Seafaring origin. Seafaring. It's something to do with being at sea. Being at sea and being a sailor. So turning、uh, yarn, which is like string, and then like、um, making it into rope. Okay. Yeah. So it's like you're making a coherent story out of basic materials. Exactly. You're putting all the information together into one long, perfect story. Story. Exactly. So to spin a yarn. To spin a yarn. Um, and you can spin a good yarn.、Mm-hmm. A good yarn might be, for example, a gripping story. What's gripping mean? Gripping means it's、uh, very exciting and holds your attention. So a gripping tale or a gripping film. Yeah. yeah? You might. Mu- so the film would be gripping, or the story would be gripping, but you would feel gripped.、Mm-hmm. So the emotion is gripped, and the the thing itself is gripping.、Mm-hmm. So. I was listening to a really gripping story, and I was gripped. Exactly. Another example of that is、um, another. Well, the same meaning is spellbinding. Something、mm. is gripping. Something spellbinding. You are completely entranced by it. Exactly, like it has a magical effect on you. Yeah. Yeah. So you might same 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 ideas. The something is spellbinding, but you feel spellbound.、Hmm. That's a strange one, isn't it? Spellbound. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's irregular.、Mm-hmm. Um, another good expression is to be on tenterhooks. What does it mean to be on tenterhooks? Is it not something to do the origin of that? It's not something to do with、uh, meat. I don't know. Okay, I don't know either. Don't know why I brought it up. Never mind. Tenterhooks means to be gripped, to be excited and enthralled and entranced、mm-hmm. by the story. Waiting for the next part、Waiting、of the story. Waiting for the like, next、oh, part. What's going to happen? What's going to happen next? I'm on tenterhooks. I yeah, can't wait. I'm on tenterhooks. I'm gripped. So these are all positive storytelling、yeah. expressions. But we've also、mm-hmm. got some、um, expressions related to、um, if you have a bad storyteller. Oh. You're not enjoying the story so much. What could you so say? So many people. We know that you've all had experiences with people that just drone on and on.、Mm-hmm. To drone on is to tell a very long and boring story.、Mm. In a boring way as well. Boring、right? way with a very flat voice. No, nothing interesting about it.、Mm, kind of monotonous. Monotonous. Oh. You can say that they drone on and on and on. You can say the and on as、oh, many times. You can say the、like. on and on and on as many times as you like. But to drone on、mm-hmm. is that one exactly. And sometimes if someone's droning on and on and on, maybe your attention can wander. Yeah. Your attention can drift.、Mm-hmm. What would that mean? Means that you're no longer concentrating.、Mm-hmm. You're not listening to what they're saying anymore. Maybe your eyes have glazed over. You're just looking at them with a very empty <laughs> look on your face. That's a good one. The、your、vacant look. Have, yeah. yeah, vacant look. Your eyes have glazed over, and you have a vacant look. <laughs> um, but drift off. I mean,、uh, so your attention can drift, your attention can wander. But like you were saying earlier about your dad telling you stories, you would drift off to sleep. <laughs> 
if you're being told a bedtime story, you might feel very comfortable and warm mm. in your bed and you drift off to sleep. Mm, it sounds lovely, doesn't it? Yeah, it does sound nice. Yeah, you got a nice soft pillow, nice sound of a nice story. And he's like, Just means go to sleep, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But in a nice way. In a nice way. Slowly drift off. Slowly, to sleep. comfortably, like a child. Mm. <laughs> anyway, that was five ways to say. Probably more than five, but they normally are. Ten ways to say. About <laughs> stories. Hope you enjoyed them. Use them this week. We're on a mission to avoid repetition with five ways to say. Thanks for listening to today's show. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, We'd like to say thanks to our wonderful sound producer, Ben Ward, for all his hard work editing and recording the show. Um, To Mark Wilding, who made our artwork and branding. To Lisa Marie Court, Bernice Ray, Vicky Malena, and our own Katie Wright for singing the jingles. And obviously the presenters, uh, Katie Wright, the wonderful Katie Wright, and myself. Um, If you've enjoyed the show, uh, leave a comment on the Facebook page or the other social medias and share, share, share. Share the link, okay? Get out to as many people as possible. So thanks to all our guests this week and tune in next time. Welcome to the podcast, two teas in a pod. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, two teas in a pod.